Please open your Bibles to the book of James. If you're using one of the Bibles that we've given you, you can turn to page 1012. And this morning we're going to be looking at James chapter 2, verse 14, through the end of the chapter. So you'll need to find the, the little number 14, and that's where we'll begin reading in a second. Listen to God's word from James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's word. When it comes to your spiritual condition, how would you describe yourself? If someone were to come up to you on the street today or at the grocery store and ask, have you been saved, what would you say? And if you say that you have been saved, what explanation could you give to back up that claim? Why do you believe you are saved? If we think not only about the folks who are in this, in this room here today, but think about the, the folks in our neighborhood or maybe clients we deal with at work, if, if they were to answer this question, we can imagine many different answers might come out. Some of our neighbors may not care at all about the question of whether they're saved or not, but many of them will. Some of them will believe that they're going to be saved because they're basically good people. They obey laws. They're polite to their neighbors. They're honest employees. Others might say that they're saved because they go to church. And then some smaller group might say they're saved because they love Jesus or have a relationship with Christ. But if you say you're saved, why do you say that? Why do you make that claim? Our passage this morning begins with this topic, what do people say? Specifically, James addresses what someone says about their faith. Look again at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
you can hear criticism and skepticism in the way James writes and frames the question. His question calls for a, a negative answer when he says, can that faith save him? What good is that? Someone may claim to have a kind of faith, a kind of faith that has no works, but James is telling us that kind of faith does not save. That by itself is an important place to start for our time this morning. We live in a world where it's considered a big mistake to question what anyone says about their own spiritual life. So we live in an age where each of us has a right to our own truth. Our private beliefs are private, and they shouldn't be subject to anyone else's questions. If someone dares to challenge our personal beliefs and practices, we can all respond with the rock-solid defense of, that's just like your opinion, man. But to someone like James... The idea that we would treat ultimate questions like preferences is insane. He thinks that these things are the things we should subject to scrutiny. And he's leading us to see that God has spoken about these issues. And James wants us to question the things we say about our faith. This morning, James is going to lead us through a process of examining the question, what is saving faith? And what is this fake faith he identifies, this faith that doesn't save? And most importantly, do I have true saving faith or not? Before we launch into the, the heart of the message, we do need to get to the bottom of what works are. So James says that true faith has works. So what are works? When he speaks of works, James is simply talking about obedience to God. And he provides a few examples in the passage we're looking at this morning, and if we go back to the previous passage we looked at last week. So just using James' little collection of examples here, we could say that obeying God looks like this. Obeying God looks like showing honor to a brother or sister in Christ, no matter how rich or poor they may be. We could say that obeying God is being merciful. We can obey God by providing food and clothing to those who need it. In Abraham's case, he obeyed God by being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, the long-awaited son that God promised him. And then in Rahab's case, she obeyed God by sheltering God's messengers and then helping to, them to escape the evil ruler of Jericho. Well, these are just a few examples of different kinds of obedience, but they all are meant to they are all obediences that accompany faith. In the words of Doug Moo, faith reaches its intended goal as we give ourselves in costly love to others. Faith reaches its intended goal in our obedience to God. And so that's what James means by works throughout this passage, that obedience to God. James' approach to this issue of faith and works is a little like the approach of a, an army against the defenses of its enemy, just battering them down. He throws everything he can at it. And so this morning, we're going to walk through his arguments with three questions. First, what good is your faith? What good is your faith? Second, what lies do we believe about faith? What lies do we believe about faith? And third, what is the goal of faith? We're going to spend most of our time on this first question. What good is your faith? 
James begins by giving us an illustration of what faith without works is like. You have to pay close attention to what he's doing here because it's, he's not just telling us do this or that. He's, he's trying to give us an image of what it's like to have faith in works. And this is what it's like in verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? The key to understanding this illustration is the question there at the end, and it's a repeat of the question he begins with in verse 14. What good is that? What good is it to offer good wishes to someone who has too little clothes and not enough food? Well, the answer is clear. It's no good at all. The hungry and the poorly clothed are no better off than when when they met you. Notice that this example, like the example last week with the poor person, takes place within the church. So these are brothers and sisters. And notice that there's, there's pious language wrapped up in this. The, the well-wishers say, go in peace. It's kind of like a modern-day equivalent to saying, God bless you. To say, go in peace or God bless you, be warmed and filled, but without providing physical help, does them no good. You might argue it's even worse than no good, that it's harmful. It actively discourages such a person. What kind of picture is presented to a brother or sister who comes to you for help and you just sort of send them on their way with well wishes while while blessing them in God's name? It presents a, a false picture of God's goodness and generosity if we treat each other like that. It relationally wounds them. James is saying that faith without works is like those empty words. People who claim to have faith without works will do no good for those people around them. They may even do harm, especially when their failure to love is dressed up in religious-sounding words. But there's another sense in which faith without works does not do any good. James leads us to conclude that such faith cannot save. Faith without works cannot save the soul of those who have that kind of faith. James is saying that such faith, faith without works, is no faith at all. It's fake faith. It can't save. So what good is it? It's no good at all. Again, it's worse than no good, because it's likely that someone who claims to have faith thinks that they are saved. And so they're deceived about their status before God. Now, since James has brought up salvation, he says this faith can't save, we need to be very clear about how someone gets saved. What kind of faith saves? If we misunderstand James here, we might think he's teaching us that it's the good works themselves that save us, that just obeying God will save us. So we we could go back to the example he provided and think, well, we just have to feed the poor and clothe the naked, and that will save us. That will give us a right standing in God's eyes. But we have to read this in context. Just remember back to what we read last week in James chapter 2. He preached to us that if we break God's law in just one way, we're guilty of all of it. So if we feed the hungry and yet we lust or covet or lie, We are guilty in God's eyes. In James' worldview, there's no way that salvation can come by works because we've already failed to do good. 
It's very clear James knows he's writing to sinful people. He's addressed sin several times already in the letter. He knew he was writing to sinful people, so what hope can he offer to these sinful people who've already condemned themselves before God? See, James believes no amount of good works that we can do today or tomorrow can make up for the sins we've already committed. There's no way we can get back on the positive side of the ledger. Salvation cannot come from inside us. And so the only hope for any sinner, people like all of us, is to look to God's grace. In our passage, we see an example of a sinner saved in this way in the the example of Abraham. So in in verse 23, James will cite Abraham, and he'll quote Genesis 15, 6, which says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The reformer John Calvin is quick to point out with Paul that this happened before Abraham had done anything good. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The promise Abraham believed in here is that God would give Abraham a son. And you have to remember, Abraham was childless for many years. He and his wife were were not able to have children. And so this was a great promise because God had already promised that through Abraham, the whole world would be blessed, that he would be the father of many nations. So this is a huge promise. A promise that he's going to have a descendant and that this descendant is going to, going to give birth to other descendants and before long a multitude will come around and Abraham will be the father of all of them. But the most important thing about this promise from an overall biblical perspective is that it's through this chosen promised line that Jesus himself will come. So in a shadowy way, Abraham believing this promise to him was a, a belief in the promise about Christ himself about the promised seed of Eve who would conquer the enemy, who would step on Satan's head. The picture here, though, is that even though Abraham was an idol-worshipping sinner from Ur of the Chaldees, just like we are, he was counted righteous. God credited him with the righteous status in God's eyes because he believed in God's promise. That's how someone gets saved. To be saved from our sin, we need the same thing Abraham needed. We need a righteousness that comes from God himself. We need that righteousness to be counted to us. And this is a gift that God can give only and that we can only receive by faith. I want you to listen to how Paul describes Abraham's faith at the end of Romans 4. He uses this same uh, verse from Genesis 15 to talk about Abraham believing God. This is Romans 4, verse 20, if you want to turn there and follow along. Paul writes that no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Saving faith is fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised. To be saved, you need to be first convicted that you're guilty before God because of your sin. 
because you've turned away from doing what God commands and you've served yourself, you deserve eternal punishment from God because of your sin. That's where saving faith begins. It's kind of odd to speak of it that way, but we have to have that conviction that God's in charge of us and he's right to command us and we've broken his law and deserve his punishment. And then you need faith in Christ. To be saved from your sin, you have to be fully convinced that Jesus paid the price for your sin when he died on the cross. You must be fully convinced that Jesus rose from the dead because he had no sin of his own and he conquered death for those who believe in him. God has promised to adopt as his own children those who trust in Christ. God has promised to give eternal life to those who believe in Jesus. Salvation comes to those who are like Abraham, fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised through Jesus Christ. This kind of faith saves, not because of the quality of the faith, but because of the quality of the object. This kind of faith saves because it's faith in the perfect work of Christ. It can, it's convinced that Jesus is able to do what he said he could do. Faith receives the gift that Christ purchased. So we don't earn righteousness in God's eyes by obeying God. We are counted righteous by faith in Christ Jesus. That is the faith that saves. And this saving faith, this faith that's full of conviction in Christ's saving work, leads believers to obey their Lord. It restores our relationship to God that sin destroyed so that we now see ourselves as servants of God. That's James's whole point here. Remember, we've just seen that saving faith involves a conviction of sin. This means it involves a conviction of, of seeing God's way as a good and right way, as the only good and right way. So saving faith recognizes the authority of God. It recognizes God is in charge of me. And his authority is good. Saving faith agrees with God that sin deserves eternal punishment. And also that righteous King Jesus endured that punishment for me, a sinner. So saving faith is not just a transaction where Jesus takes my sin and I get his righteousness. That is part of it, but it's more than that. Saving faith is a total reorientation of our life. You might see saving faith and trust in Christ as a bit like a, a getting married. Getting married changes your status. It changes your relationship to another person. But imagine meeting someone when you're out today who excitedly told you, hey, I just got married yesterday. And this person goes on to tell you about the vows they took and the party they had after the ceremony. But as you talk with this person, it becomes clear that he's not planning to live with his wife. He's not planning to care for her or provide for her in any way. And he's not stopped dating other women. How ridiculous would it be for someone to say, I had a wedding, but do not have marriage? That's how ridiculous it is to say, I have faith, but don't have works. Faith is the recognition that I am not my own but have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. And this is why true faith leads to obedience. Not perfect obedience. True Christians still fail and we, we need forgiveness. But true obedience pleases God. And we can do that by faith in Christ. 
the person with saving faith desires to please the Lord. This is why James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead. It doesn't do anything for you. And so to claim to have faith, to say, I have a relationship with Jesus, but I'm not too worried about obeying him. To claim to have faith without works is to tell on yourself. It's basically a confession that you really haven't understood what it means to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. The kind of faith that has no works does no good for the person who has it. So what good is your faith? Is your faith kind of like this faith that James portrays? This faith that's, that's like these religious-sounding well-wishes that do no good? Does the way you treat others flow from the fact that you've been purchased by Jesus? The kind of faith that avoids costly love and costly obedience, it's no faith at all. It does no good to anyone, including the person who has it. So what good is your faith? After James asks us that question, what good is your faith? He moves on to the second question. What lies do we believe about faith? And he identifies two lies that we might believe about faith, and then he tells us why they are not true. So we see the first lie in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James imagines a, a conversation partner chiming in with an objection, but it's, it's a little difficult to see exactly what they're arguing. The best way to understand this, is, uh, this hypothetical person is to imagine them saying, some have faith, some have works. The lie here is that faith and works are two different topics that we shouldn't mix. This imaginary person is saying, James, it is wrong to even talk about faith and works in the same sentence. They just don't go together. The practical payoff of keeping faith and works apart would be a church where some people in the church are faith people and some people are the works people. Some people would be all about doctrine and believing spiritual truths and others would be all about action and doing good. And the general philosophy of this kind of church would be to each his own. You faith people do your faith thing, and you works people do your works thing, and we can all just worship God in our own way. Now, in the context James is writing to, it appears there were a lot more in the, the faith people group, and not so many in the works group. So this church would have ended up being a place where it was okay to discriminate against the poor and to, to leave the hungry to go hungry, but to claim you had faith, to claim you had a relationship with Jesus while not following him. Perhaps the rich of the community would feel welcome in a church like that because they could be part of this group without having to really change anything about their lives. So maybe separating faith and works was a church growth strategy. It helped them to reach their target demo, the rich and powerful in the community. But James, look at James's response here in verse 18. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James says that faith is made visible by our obedience to God. So this first part of the statement, show me your faith apart from your works, is impossible. 
It would boil down to someone saying, look, I know my life doesn't look in any way like I'm any different from the world, but just take my word for it. I'm following Jesus. In a modern person's mouth, it might come out like this. My faith is personal and private. It's none of your business, really, how I live out my relationship with Jesus. If that's the claim that you're tempted to make this morning, James is calling you to examine whether you really have faith at all. He'd ask you the probing question we just asked earlier. What good is your faith? Now, faith and works are not identical, but they cannot be separated. I've often heard Mark Dever say that our faith is personal, but it's never private. A healthy church can't be built on the idea that some seek to live in obedience to Christ while others don't. This is one reason why we're committed to the practice of, of church membership and church discipline. We want folks who come to our church and want to join with us to understand that following Jesus is a, is a whole life commitment. And that we're committed to, to helping each other do that and to holding each other accountable when we fail to do that in an unrepentant way. We can't water down Christ's calling. Now, it's possible that by eliminating the commands of Christ, or maybe some of the most difficult ones, we could make our church grow in numbers. It might be easier for some who just kind of want to be a part of a group to join us. But we would be growing away from our Lord if we did that. True faith shows up in works. As Christ's people, our lives are to imitate Christ's sacrificial love. So James wants us to see faith and works go together. Don't believe the lie that they should be kept apart. The second lie James identifies is the lie that faith is simply knowing truth about God. So look at verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. To say that God is one is an important biblical confession of faith. You can find it in the Old Testament. It's a very important and true statement about God. Our theological theme for our service this morning is that we're worshiping the one true God. We confess that God is one. So James isn't denigrating that confession, but he wants us to see that knowing, the, knowing true things about God and believing true things about God does not save anyone by itself. The question is, what do you do with the truth that you say you know? And James points to one example to prove his point. The demons know the truth about God. They are accurate theologians in that sense. If that's all that faith is, then demons have it. John Calvin, the French reformer, expresses James's sentiment well here. He says, It would be ridiculous were anyone to say that the devils have faith. And James prefers them in this respect to hypocrites. The devil trembles, he says, at the mention of God's name, because when he acknowledges his own judge, he is filled with the fear of him. He then, who despises an acknowledged God, is much worse. The situation of the demon who trembles in fear of judgment is better than the person who claims to have faith without works. As Calvin puts it, to claim to have faith without works is to despise God. To claim to be saved by Jesus and refuse to follow him is to despise his salvation. 
Are you coming here today and you're starting to understand the truths of the gospel? That's wonderful. I want to encourage you. Keep learning. Do you, do, do you enjoy learning about theology and what Christians in the past have believed? That's great. Keep pursuing knowledge of God. But know that these truths that you're learning are meant to lead you to worship and obey the Lord. They're meant to lead you to, to trust God and follow him. And if your knowledge of God is not leading you to repentance, and it's not leading you to faith, and it's not leading you to love, then it's worthless. It actually condemns you. Saving faith is not simply knowing the truth about God. So those are two lies James wants us to reject. Reject the idea that faith and works should be kept separate. Our faith is made visible in our obedience to Christ. And reject the idea that faith is simply knowing the truth about God. Truly knowing God will lead you to worship him. It will lead you to trust in Christ and obey him. We can see this uh, in the last part of James's argument by framing it as this question, what is the goal of faith? And as part of the answer, James gives two examples from the Old Testament. He gives Abraham and Rahab. And he presents these two people as examples of people with faith and works. They both illustrate the, the point he just made, that one's faith is made visible in your obedience to God. We can see their faith by what they did. And James builds on this idea that faith is seen in works in verse 22 and what he says about Abraham. He says, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. James is giving us a window into how faith works. He's telling us true faith is active. Faith does its work by producing obedience. And then James says that Abraham's works completed his faith. As I was trying to figure out what it means for faith to be completed, I, I found Doug Moo's explanation of this word completed to be really helpful. So Doug Moo, he's not just a funny guy with a cow name. He's a commentator. He, he writes books about the Bible. And he described um, this word completed in reference to another verse in the Bible. So he says, if you look at how the word completed is used in James 2.22, the, the closest parallel in the Bible to this word, uh, to the same usage is 1 John 4.12. So listen to how the word completed is used there, and then I'm going to read you a quote from, from Dr. Moo. John, 1 John 4.12. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. God's love is made complete in us, if we love one another. Listen to how Dr. Mu describes this. He says, clearly our love does not complete God's love in the sense that the love of God is inadequate or faulty without our response. It is rather that God's love comes to expression, reaches its intended goal when we respond to his grace with love toward others. So also, Abraham's faith, James suggests, reached its intended goal when the patriarch did what God was asking him to do. So faith reaches its intended goal when Abraham obeys God. Obedience is the goal of faith. Faith reaches its intended goal in our lives when we obey our Lord. 
then we do what God asks us to do. Faith, faith reaches its intended goal when we respond to God's grace with love towards others. Let's look a little closer at these two examples that James gives in this light. How does faith reach its intended goal in Abraham's life and then Rahab's life? Abraham, in Genesis 22, was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. As we've already mentioned, Isaac was the son that Abraham and his wife Sarah had longed for for their whole lives. Not only that, but the fulfillment of God's great promise to Abraham was to come through Isaac. So it was through Isaac that all of Abraham's hopes and dreams would be realized. And God commanded Abraham to give up the most precious gift that he had ever been offered. It's really the most precious gift perhaps that anyone on earth has been offered. Listen to how Hebrews 11, 17 and 18 describes Abraham's faith in this situation. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. We look at Abraham's obedience here. He goes into this act of sacrificing his son, not knowing how God is going to be good to him, but trusting that God is going to be good to him. And the author of Hebrews, divinely inspired, said Abraham believed that he would kill his son and God would raise him from the dead. But you see Abraham's confidence. What motivated Abraham was not, well, i got to earn my salvation today. His confidence was, God is good. God has made this promise to me. And I can obey God knowing that God will continue to be good and keep his promise. And God did keep his promise. So if you don't know the story, Abraham doesn't plunge a knife through his son's chest. He doesn't kill his son. God stops him, and he provides a substitute, a substitute sacrifice caught there in the thicket, and Abraham's son is saved and returned to him from death. God was good to Abraham, and Abraham's faith reached its goal in his obedience to God. In many ways, the story of Rahab couldn't be more different We read the story earlier in in Joshua chapter 2. And some of the ways it's different, you know, Abraham is is sort of the, the example of faith par excellence. He's the father of God's people. He's where it all starts. Rahab is a Gentile. She's one of the enemies of God. She's in Jericho, which is part of the land of Canaan, where God's people are going to come in and conquer. Not only that, she's a notorious sinner. You know, her tagline is Rahab the prostitute. The scriptures don't record any time where God spoke to Rahab in like an audible way or gave her special promises the way he promised things to Abraham. She had none of the benefits that Abraham had. But when Joshua sent spies to spy out the land and they came to Jericho, they lodged with Rahab. She welcomes them in. And when the king of Jericho comes knocking at the door and says, give me those spies that we know are there, she protects them and helps them escape. Now, it's interesting to note, we don't have the New Testament uh, applauding Rahab for, for lying, but we do have the New Testament applauding her for the way she loved God's people and protected them. And the picture we get is that somehow she had come to believe in Israel's God, and she threw her lot in with God's people. I want to just read again for you part of what we read earlier from Joshua chapter 2, verse 9. This is Rahab's speech to the spies. She says, 
I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save me alive, save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. It's interesting as you read that, that Rahab talks about how the news of Israel's victories had spread far and wide. And she speaks of everyone in Jericho melting away with fear when they heard this news. But I think we can be pretty sure that the, the ruler or the king of Jericho, when he came knocking on the door, he didn't come to get those spies so that he could convert. He came to kill the spies, right? He would have fought against God's plan. He heard, the Lord is mighty, the Lord has conquered, the Lord is coming, and I will defy him. And that was an option available to Rahab too. She could have turned the spies over. But that's not how she responds to the news of the Lord's deliverance of his people. She trusts in him. She's not simply here trying to save her own skin. Because it doesn't have to go this way, right? The, the children of Israel could come and they could attack Jericho and Jericho could win. Because it, it happens with Ai a little later. Which is, Ai is, I've heard a Hebrew for like trash heap. So they conquer the walled city of Jericho and then they fall to Ai, the trash heap. So it didn't have to go this way. But she trusts that God is going to give Jericho to his people. And she throws her lot in with his people. And not only this, but she, she asks for God's favor. She trusts that God can deliver her and her family. And so she makes this bold request. Save me. Save my mom and dad and my brothers and sisters. And that's what God did. God rewarded her faith. He spared her and her family. Now, again, in both these examples, Abraham and Rahab, they weren't obeying God as a way to earn God's favor. She didn't obey God in this instance in order to cover up for all of her past sins. They obeyed God because they believed in his goodness. They believed in his power. They believed that God could save them and that he would keep his promises. This is how faith works. These examples also show us that true faith works or is supposed to work in every aspect of our lives. So faith was at work in Abraham's life as he responded to God's voice. Maybe that's like how we're called to respond to God's word when we hear it, preached or reading it on our own. But we also see that faith was active in Rahab's life when she just welcomed two spies into her home. Our faith may be tested this afternoon on our drive home or at a waiter at the restaurant, or as we speak to each other after church, or as parents put their kids down for naps. There's no area of our life that our faith doesn't touch. In both Abraham and Rahab's life, their faith led them to costly obedience. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son, his precious son. Rahab risked being counted as a traitor in order to protect God's messengers. We don't have to wonder what would have happened to Rahab. 
Do you see how faith works? Do you see how faith's intended goal is our obedience to God? The gift of faith is made for obedience. So how is God calling you to obey and follow him? Perhaps you're at the very beginning of learning about Christ. And Christ right now is calling you to repent and believe in him for the first time. He's calling you to give up all your attempts at saving yourself and trust only in his work to pay for your sin. If that's where you're at this morning, confess your pride and your sin to God and cry out to him for for salvation and he will deliver you. Cry out to him the way Ahab or Rahab called out to these spies. He will keep his promises to you. Maybe you believe you really have come recently to trust God and you're trusting in Christ for salvation and you need to follow Christ in baptism. God's word is clear that those who trust in Christ should be baptized. And it's a way that we go public with the fact that our only hope is in Jesus. We're excited by the work God is doing in many of you. And it may be that God is calling you to be baptized. If you want to talk about this, what it means to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior and what it means to be baptized, I, I hope you'll talk to me or one of the other pastors after church. These are really important things and we would love to talk to you about them. All of us need to ask whether our faith is reaching its intended goal. Are there sins that we're holding on to and refusing to confess? What is it that we're unwilling to give up? What's keeping us from joyfully obeying God in every area of our lives? Is our faith working? Is it reaching its intended goal? We can't leave this passage without addressing a difficult question that James presents. Throughout the passage, he keeps using the word justified. He says that Abraham and Rahab were justified by their works and not by faith. I tried to take some time at the beginning of the message to show that James does not believe that anyone can be saved by their works. He knows that everyone is imperfect. No one keeps the law perfectly. He knows that we all stand condemned. He's writing to sinners. So the best explanation for why James uses this word justified is simply that he means something different by it than Paul did. So Paul writes in Romans 3.28, that we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of law. It's almost the exact opposite of what James writes. But Paul is using justified to describe what I described earlier, that idea that God counts a person righteous by faith in Jesus, that God counts righteousness to us by faith in Jesus so that believers can stand before our righteous God clothed in Jesus' righteousness. That's the gospel that we proclaim. That by nature we stand guilty before God, deserving his judgment, but by faith in Christ we can stand clothed in Christ's righteousness and we can boldly approach the throne of grace. But when James says we're justified, he's not talking about this imputation of Christ's righteousness. Instead, he's saying that our works, our obedience, those things are the, the validation of our faith. In the words of John Calvin again, James does not allow those who lack good works to be reckoned righteous. So the justification that James is talking about is is more like looking back on the life of faith. It looks back on the life of faith and it announces, this child of God has works that match their faith. This one endured faithfully to the end. 
even at Shirley's service yesterday, we recounted the way God could continue to work in her life to the very end of her life. She didn't get, give up on works of obedience when she turned 60. She kept learning and growing and following Jesus. To sum up one of Calvin's points again, Abraham was counted righteous by God because of his faith in Genesis 15:6, And that faith occurred decades before his obedience to I, with Isaac in Genesis 22. But it's after his obedience in Genesis 22 that the angel says to Abraham, Now I know that you fear God. This is what it means for Abraham to be justified by works. So what's the verdict on your faith? Looking back at your life of faith, what would be said? We began this morning by asking what you would say about your faith. But that's not really the most important question, is it? The question we need to ask is, what does God say about faith? That's what we've tried to look at this morning. Most of us here claim to have faith. What good is your faith? Is your faith reaching its intended goal? Are you fully assured that God is able to forgive your sins through Jesus Christ? Are you so convinced of God's goodness that you're willing to follow him wherever he leads, even if it's into costly obedience? If the answers to those questions leans more to no than yes, the solution is not to double down on your good works and just try harder. The question you really need to ask is, in who or in what is my faith in? The, the ultimate solution is to look to Christ. See, the real hero of Abraham's story and of Rahab's story is not Abraham and Rahab. It's the God who saved them. God graciously kept his promise to Abraham. He provided that goat in the bushes. God spared Rahab and her family just as she pleaded with him to do. Even as the walls of Jericho fell down around them and everyone around them was, was killed, they were spared. And Rahab, the prostitute, became one of God's people. And she receives an honored place in Christ's own family tree. So the answer to fake faith does not lie within us. True faith comes as we come to know the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. He gave his life to pay for our sin. It's because of his work that we can stand in God's righteous presence. If James has exposed your fake faith this morning, don't look to yourself. Turn to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we cannot confront your word in a passage like this without being convicted of the ways that we have failed to follow you. In moments when you've called us to obey, we've held on to treasured sin. We've refused to confess it. We don't want to deal with it. Father, I pray that you would work in each of our hearts. Help us to see the joy and repentance. Help us to see the goodness in your ways. Help us to live as those who have been bought with Christ's precious blood. Father, for my friends here who are just exploring what it means to know you, Father, I pray that you would open their eyes, show them your goodness, that they would call out to you, and that you would show them mercy. We pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.